It's a great blessing to be with you once again. It's always a joy, a privilege, an encouragement. Um, in fact, we have been praying for you as well as you pray for us. We know you've been under a lot, too, in so many different ways. Uh, it's good to see you all here, but uh, I think also those who are absent from this meeting as well. And uh, so we've been concerned, <laughs> as you are concerned for us, and pray for us. And, um, and we know that, generally speaking, it's been a difficult time for the world in general, and God's people in particular, and for all of us. Uh, our ways have been, uh, uh, we're going through a particular time, our son is getting married, Luca. And uh, so we have been desiring to be here this time around as well. I was not uh, sure I would make it, but uh, I could only come in. Suddenly there was some uh, directives from the U.S. government that non-American citizens will be able to come to the States only unvaccinated, only up until the 8th of this month. So... All of a sudden, I had to hurry up and get my bags and <laughs> fly in the country before it was too late. And so I anticipated my coming, and she will be coming in uh, the beginning of December. And so that will be that will be good. Many things to be grateful for. I'm sure you you remember your own blessings, and we do ours as well. Uh, you already spoken of Luke, uh, Sarah's expecting a child, a baby boy. Remy will be his name, and so what a what a wonderful thing. Uh, we, in fact, you know, I I'm here not half-heartedly, <laughs> but you know, part of my heart will always be there. Uh, it doesn't matter where I go, but especially now. You know, I've really struggled to pack up my things and come. Um, I had to talk to myself many times <laughs> um, to shaken up a little bit. And uh, because, you know, I, uh, Sarah's expecting, I want to be there as much as possible, close to her. And uh, so... Um, but also many things are happening uh, in the ministry. There are needs in, in every way. And also, generally speaking, our country, Italy, is going through a very, very difficult time. Uh, the government has taken a very sinister turn, wrong, wrong turn, um, taking away liberties of all sorts. Um, all who are basically, all, all who refuse to be vaccinated cannot go to work, uh, cannot go to school, uh, elementary, uh, high school, university level. Uh, you're practically banned from social life if you're not vaccinated. And so there are actually millions of people right now nearly out of work all of a sudden. There's been a lot of turmoil, Shiri and I, and even gone to some of these manifestations 
to get a feel of what was happening among the people. Found ourselves among some Marxists <laughs> and Leninists and uh, among others. Uh, but um, in fact, uh, the thing that we will consider this morning will, will speak to this effect as well. So I, um, I had to really struggle because I did not want to leave my country at this time. Um, you don't leave, you know, when things get tough or tougher. Uh, you stay. And uh, so I, I really refuse to think that I can seek for a better treatment when, generally speaking, my own people are going through difficult times. So I will be happy to go back as much as I love to be here among you because um, I know that's where I need to be. Um, um, <clears throat> but uh, as I wrote to Kevin, uh, as much as possible, I'd like to be with you. I know you've been without a pastor for a good while now, and uh, the Lord knows we appreciate your faithfulness to hang together. And it's so good to see uh, some people in you know particular ways for whom we have prayed and. Uh, so perhaps on Wednesday nights, uh, as much as possible on Sunday evenings, as you would like for me to come by and encourage you, if I if I can, I'll be very happy to. Also, we'll be visiting our churches, supporting churches, visiting friends, and and I like to spend some time with you guys during the week, you know, to 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 come and visit you or do things together and talk and. Uh, there's just not much time for that. There's not been much time for that through the years. I'll be happy to see Chris. It's been a good while since I've seen him. And so, so many things to say, but I don't want to take more of the time. And I, I have reserved the song for this evening. <laughs> also because I would need a guitar and perhaps Paul would have his available. But would you open to Matthew in chapter 24? Uh, As a local church, we've been uh, considering this chapter for a good while now, and so, as usually, I, as I should usually do, I don't. Uh, I usually share with you the thoughts and the burdens and the messages, the essence of the messages that I, we've been sharing in Italy, um, and so. I am sure that what has been happening in our world has uh, solicited in our minds and hearts many times the thought of the end of, of the world. Uh, how near is the return of the Lord, the coming of Christ? And so, even though we cannot, we are forbidden by Scripture to set dates uh, there are many passages in Scripture that tell us that we need to be mindful that this earth is not going to last forever as it is. That this humanity one day will end and that we need to be ready whenever that time will come. So in light of what is happening in the light of these passages, as a pastor there in Italy, I thought it would be good for us to uh, focus on 
Matthew 24, Matthew 24 being the most important passage when it comes to the end of times, the end of this present world, the return of Christ in the whole realm of the four Gospels, along with the relative scriptures in Mark and Luke. But we will focus on Matthew 24. Um, and it, as it is a good practice, when one wants to really understand a, a biblical doctrine in the clearest way possible, it is a good practice to go to the clearest passage. <laughs> the, the passage, those passages that speak um, broadly and deeply and extensively about any issue. Um, so we're not going to any darkened, I mean, any dark, um, unclear, um, you know, passage of the Bible, perhaps, as some people like to do, extrapolate it from its context. We're not going to do that. Let us go to, to this passage that is so extensively dedicated to this theme, out of the lips of our very Lord. Let us pray before we uh, go into it. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for who you are, the Lord and the Savior of our life. We thank you for being so faithful through the years, from the time you've called us to yourself and all the way through the years of our lifetime. You have never um, been unfaithful to us. You've always been faithfully guiding, protecting, feeding, recalling us to you. Uh, and guiding us and using us for your glory. Oftentimes, Lord, forgiving us of our sins and shortcomings. Lord, we ask you to be with us, that uh, your word will be precious to all of us this morning, to those who believe and to those who yet believe not, that they may too believe in you and find rest, eternal rest, and salvation in your gospel, in your word, in yourself. For the glory of the Father, in your name we pray. Amen. So let us read from verse 4 all the way to verse 14. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled uh, for all. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences in 
earthquakes in various places, all of these uh, are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. If the Lord leads, I will share more thoughts from this passage in the weeks to come. So now we want to consider it from a general point of view. Well, what considerations can we, can we express if we just look at what we have read from a general point of view without going to any detail? And the first thing that would come to my mind is the sobriety of the Lord's language. Um, now why do I say that? I say that because uh, issues concerning eschatology, the return of Christ, the end of the world, have often been, been spoken of and written about in a very sensationalistic way. Uh, there's plenty of books to demonstrate that. When it comes to the end of time, there's no limit to man's imaginations. Why did that happen through the centuries? Well, because the issue of the end of time, the end of the world especially, if we speak of the end of the world, is one issue that obviously uh, attracts the... Uh, curiosity of man, but also the fear of man. Humanity, mankind, is very fearful about the end of the world. I know humanity rejects God. It's hardly possible to find anybody in this world that is mindful of God. And yet, deep down inside, humanity is terrified at the thought of the end of the world. And so when the issue is addressed, uh, it does attract attention, especially in times of tribulation and, and war, and when the whole world seems to be destabilized, and, and people begin to wonder, is this the end? Is this the end? They not, may not be believers, but the thought is there, because deep down inside, they are terrified of God and of the judgment of God which they know, deep down inside, is coming. And so many religious circles have, um, how should I say, um, exploited this curiosity and this fear to generate a sensational approach to eschatology and attract all sorts of followers after themselves. We don't want to do that. And, and it's very interesting, therefore, 
the first thing that we note is the sobriety of the Lord's language. There's nothing sensational here. It's a very fact-of-the-matter language of what will happen as the time of the end draws near and near and near. And it is with this clarity of mind and this sobriety of language that we want to consider this. We don't want to play with numbers or with symbolisms. We want to understand the, the, the essential things that we need to be mindful of when it comes to the end of this present world. I know there may be an objection to this. And the, obse the objection is, what about the book of Revelation? There seems to be a lot of sensationalistic uh, imagery there, isn't there? Uh, well, no. No, not at all. In the moment that we, that we understand that Revelation is an apocalyptic book, that uses a lot of symbolic language. In the moment that we translate those symbols into realities, the book of Revelation itself acquires and demonstrates the same sobriety that we meet here in Matthew 24. Because we know that uh, the symbols of the stars in Revelation is there to indicate angels, we know that the symbol of these uh, monsters that appear in the book of Revelation, or beasts, is there to indicate empires of power. We know that horns in the book of Revelation, and not only in the book of Revelation, indicate kings, men of power in the world. We know that the scarlet woman Actually, it's there to indicate a city, the city of Rome that sits on the seven hills. So when we translate all of these symbols out of the book of Revelation and follow the keys, follow the keys, the key explanations, uh, all of this imagery acquires uh, a reality, a content reality that's very, very sober. We're not in the realm of sensationalism at all in Scripture. We're always in the realm of sobriety and, uh, and the preciousness and the value of truth as it, as it was communicated to us by the Lord. Of course, another question may arise. Why symbolic language at all? Why symbolic language at all? Why symbolic language in apocalyptic scripture, like Ezekiel, like Daniel, like other books in the Old Testament, but also like in the book of Revelation? And the reason, I believe the reason of this symbolic language, why God adopted symbolic language for apocalyptic literature in the Bible, is because the events of the end of times are not supposed to be clearly understood by anybody. <laughs> clearly understood by anybody. God does not want to tell us exactly what's going to happen in the clearest of ways because He knows the human heart. He knows that men and women will use that as a way of counting the days. You know, I'm going to live 
my own life until I can see, pinpoint exactly the sign of His coming. And the minute before He comes, I'm going to be converted. God does not want us to do that. (laughs) And that's why I believe He adopted this symbolic language in apocalyptic scripture as to confuse a little bit our minds and to leave us suspended. You know, what does it exactly mean? I can That's why we may have different in our circles we have different understandings when it comes to eschatology. That's not uh, we have so much in common when it comes to everything that concerns the gospel, I would hope, <laughs> in our own circles. Uh, but when it comes to eschatology it's more difficult. Why? Because the Bible itself wants to confuse us a little bit, to leave us suspended, that we would say, I I don't know exactly when, I'm not sure even exactly how, (laughs) but I know the end is going to come. And and it may be very near, so I better be ready. So there's wisdom, there's wisdom, even in the kind of uh, literary uh, in the literary kind uh, that God chose for his for the biblical books, uh, but now let us go to our chapter and a- after these words of introduction, we may begin to get a feel here of some things um, and I would tie back our thoughts to what I was saying earlier concerning the element of curiosity and sensationalism. By acting this way, by treating uh, eschatological passages of the Bible in this very carnal, human way, we have in fact imitated the apostles. Look at verse 3. As the Lord tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed, verse 2. Well, the thought of the end times comes to the mind of the apostles. So they ask what? Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice the two questions. What are they interested in? The when and the how. The signs. That's exactly what we have, for the most part, been pursuing through the ages when it comes to eschatological biblical revelation. We've been arguing about exactly when, doing all sorts of calculations, and we've been trying to set the dates and the calendar for all of the events that are going to happen. You know, this is going to happen here, this is going to happen here, then this is going to happen at this point, and this is not before, but after this, and then there's a here resurrection, there's an, a third resurrection, then a fifth resurrection, and then a judgment, and a sixth judgment. And But the Lord, that, that's the mindset of the Apostle. To demonstrate how much that is true, you will remember, I know, what happens in the book of Acts after the Lord is... Uh, has died and risen and after he's spoken to them for many many days yet (laughs) verse 6 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts therefore when they had come together they the apostles asked him saying Lord 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? At this time, now. It's, it's always the question of when and the signs that will lead or come before the end. And the Lord has to repeat what He has already told them. <laughs> he said unto them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. He had already told them. If you go back to chapter 24 of Matthew, and you read with me verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So the Lord repeats, Do not be concerned so much about the when of my return, and even so much about the signs. So what is exactly that the Lord emphasizes here? Well, I would say three things especially. One, that the end will come and that he will return. Secondly, why the end will come and why he will return. And then, how? How is this going to happen, essentially? What's going to happen in our humanity, in our world? What's going to happen in Christianity? especially as the end nears. So the fact itself of the end, the why, the reason why, and how this is going to take place. Not when. Not when. The Lord essentially does not even answer that question. And even when it comes to the sign that's supposed to precede His coming, He identifies that sign with the, with the the coming itself. <laughs> if we look again in uh, in chapter 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn as they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the sign. The sign of His coming is His coming with great power and universal glory. Very essential, very sober. But He wants them to change the orientation of their thinking, not so much about when, and the signs, but about the fact itself, the reason why the end will come, and He will come, and how this is going to take place. And I think, if we approach it this way, and we consider all that this chapter actually talks about, Concerning these three, these three points, the fact, the why, and the how, a lot of meaningful um, thoughts and truths and considerations 
can be learned and drawn from this passage that can be very meaningful to us. Let us consider one this morning. Again, if we look at verse 4 through 14, what is the the idea, the concept that seems to be recurring all the time? Let us go through it once more. Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, say, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Go with me, if you would, to verse 11. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Go with me, if you would, to verse 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonder as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So what do we hear? What is the Lord speaking about? He's speaking about false Christianity, false Christs, false prophets that will operate through false miracles. Now, it's interesting to note that all of these things have always taken place throughout history. There's always been false Christs, always been false prophets, and always been false miracles. So what's the difference? What is it that will make a difference that will indicate that something different is taking place. And I would say is the increase of these things that will signal that something different is taking place. In fact, he keeps on repeating many, 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 many. There's always been some, but as we draw near the end, there will be many false Christs, many false prophets, many false miracles. It's the, multipli the multiplication of the evil. So here's a, a, an important concept, continuity and discontinuity. The continuity is that what has happened throughout history will continue to happen till the end of time. All the evils that have been happening throughout history will continue to happen till the end of times. But as the end of the world draws near, it will multiply. It will grow. It will enlarge. It will expand. It will flood everywhere. That's the thought. Again, look again with me verse, let us say, 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, again, what are we talking about? Well, of course, we're talking about wars and devastation. And if we read a little bit onward, especially, I would say, uh, Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, a great tribulation such as that not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, not ever shall be. You see, 
there's been many tribulations throughout history. No question about it. But there will come a great tribulation, which will be much greater, much powerful, much tremendous, as a tribulation as never was and never shall be again. So there is a continuity of tribulation, but the discontinuity is in the measure, in the measure, in the greatness of it. And the same thing, so we must talk about wars and rumors of wars, verse 6, and then verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There has always been war in, in humanity, all through history. But there will come a time when there will be nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and a tribulation as, as, as there never was. And everyone will be destroyed if God wouldn't put a stop to it. So again, continuity and discontinuity. There's always been wars, but as the time of the end draws near, the wars will be multiplied, will become worldwide, universal as it never was before. Again, look at verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Many false prophets will arise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, Look at that verb, it's important. Abound, multiply, fill up the measure. That's what it means in the original. It has the idea of fullness, fullness. The love of many will grow cold. And again, we can say, there's always been tribulations for Christians throughout history, but the kind of tribulation the Lord is speaking about uh, is greater, is greater. Um... Look what he says, uh, verse 9. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. There will be no haven for refuge. No nation where you can say there is freedom for Christians. It will not be so. Christian, freedom will be taken away everywhere. Comes the time. Comes the time. So tribulation has always been continuity. Where is the discontinuity? It will increase increase, increase. There's always been people that have betrayed the faith. But this betrayal will grow and multiply as the end comes near. Uh, there's always been a measure of coldness among God's people, but the, the, the coldness of that love that will grow colder and colder will grow, will multiply, will increase as the end comes near. Um, you may say, well, in verse 14 it says, however, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Doesn't this seem to point to a a post-millennial view of eschatology that the world is going to be converted? Well, no, it doesn't really seem to be at all. 
The Lord is not saying that as the gospel will be preached in all the world, then all the world will embrace the gospel. He's, he's saying exactly the opposite. That the church will continue to preach the gospel until the end, in spite of the increase in persecution. That's the picture. It's undeniably written this way. So, uh, one can get into every one of these areas. And it's so very important to get into every one of these areas. The degeneration within Christianity. The Lord says a lot about this. The degeneration in society. The Lord says a lot about this. The multiplication of persecution. The defections that will take place among the people of God. Every one of these areas is a, a, a most important area of consideration for Christians. But before we get into the detail, let us just focus on this one element. That the more the end will draw near, and especially as the end will draw near, and the Lord's return will draw near, evil will multiply in all of its expressions in human society and in human culture. The thought actually is this, that the end will come. The end will come when, when this will happen. When the evil of the world and all the evils that humankind is able to, to perpetrate will reach a, a point of fullness, a climax. You can't go beyond that according to the patience and the mercy of God. There will be an end to the, to the patience of God. And when the evil of the world will have reached its climax, its fullness, that's when God will put a stop to it. So there's no question that the Lord foresees um, difficult times for Christians. And these difficult times will become more and more difficult as time draws near, the time of the end draws near. But as we'll see towards the end, <laughs> he prefaces these words with this sentence in verse 4. Take heed that no one deceives you. And then, uh, especially, uh, you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. How can we not be troubled? in light of all this. But the Lord does say that. So there is a way in which must be realistic, because the Lord is realistic. His truth itself. He will always tell us the truth. He will not deceive us. He will not paint us a beautiful picture of a, a, a you know a most rosy future. He doesn't do that. And yet he tells us this is what's going to happen. But the Lord will look after his elect. Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. You of all people, my people, should not be troubled whatever takes place. I'm giving you an idea here of what's going to happen, that you may be prepared, but I will also give you grace to be able to face it. 
So we must understand. We won't be able to stand if we do not understand. <laughs> Understanding comes first of all. Then the affection of the heart and the dedication of the life. But we must understand. And we must, I think, avoid all of this eschatological sensationalism that has emptied most of the eschatological message of the Bible of their true meaning for us today in our society, in our godless culture. So this is a concept that we must understand very clearly. Why is it then that God will not put an end to the world until the world has, has, will have filled the cup of iniquity and sinfulness and depravity? Why? Could not God do it before? Could he not avoid this catastrophic end? Can, can he not make the end a little bit more pleasant? Why? Well, let us take this one thought. <laughs> we want to say this theological thought <laughs> through the scripture and see to ruminate this for some time and then draw the most important lesson out of it. So let us go back to Genesis. When we look at the way God has dealt with humanity and then Israel and then again with humanity throughout the Bible, what do we see? Well, in Genesis 6, of course, we are in the area where the Bible speaks of the flood, the universal flood that destroyed humanity back then. But notice what precedes the flood. What has I don't want to say led God, because God is not led by anything. But why has God destroyed humanity at this point? Well, humanity was becoming more and more depraved. That's the picture we get from verses 1 through 8. So much so that the Lord said in verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with humanity. The word Adam there means humanity. He's not speaking of a singular man, but he's speaking of the human race. We may really well translate it this way. My spirit shall not strive with the human race forever. For the human race, man, mankind, is flesh indeed. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. This is how much time God has given to humanity before its end will come. Just like with Nineveh, I'll give you 40 days. <laughs> and now humanity, I'll give you 120 years. But look at that expression, my spirit shall not strive, contend with humanity forever. God's patience has an end. Humanity was desperately wanting to go in the direction of perversion. Because it delights in evil. It has pleasure in evil. Uh, and God says, I'm striving with you. I'm holding you back. <laughs> but I will not do that forever. I will not be holding you back forever. Time will come when I will remove my uh, impediments, my obstacles, and I will let you go all the way to depravity. 
This message of 120 years, I believe, is the message that was preached by Noah. Because God says, He's speaking here. And He's bringing this message to humanity. He's not just speaking to Himself. <laughs> he's speaking to humanity. And he, he, he was doing that through Noah, who was His witness and a preacher of righteousness, as Second Peter tells us. And that's the message that Noah brought. But what did the Lord see? Verse 5. The Lord saw that in spite of that warning, <laughs> depravity continued to multiply. Saw that the wickedness of men was great. You see? Great in the earth. That word great, again, is there to emphasize multiplication, completion, fullness. It was getting to the, to the fullness of the cup. Uh, great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, among us of Reformed orientation, this verse is usually, is often used to speak of the depravity of man as he is. But in the context, that's not really what he's speaking about. In its content, he's speaking of that um, depth of depravity that humanity can fall into if it perseveres into evil to the point where everything humanity thinks and everything humanity does is only evil in the sight of God that means that God has removed the barriers and he's letting humanity go all the way to be completely depraved in every expression of his thought of its life. And that's when the end must come. When this point is reached, the end must come. And the Lord, verse 6, was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. See, this is very important, even for us Reformed now. <laughs> or Calvinistic, I don't like the word. <laughs> but those who understand the sovereignty of God God was not pleased. He had no pleasure. He found no pleasure even at the thought of the destruction of those non-elect. <laughs> Why? Because God loved them. God loved them. But he, he came to a point where he knew it was time to destroy. Because the sight of what humanity become was unbearable to his eyes. So, I know there is a particular love of God for His own people, for His bride, but there is also universal love of God for all human beings. And this is what is emphasized here. In Ezekiel He would say, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not sadistic. He has no pleasure in the condemnation of men. So the whole responsibility of this falls with mankind. So the Lord said, as He grieved, as He grieved, He said, I will destroy. Now, <laughs> this is important to keep in mind, isn't it? The most precious things we must uh, understand and believe is the character of God. Is the character of God. That's where everything comes from. <laughs> the whole creation comes out of the character of God. 
the whole realm of morality comes of the character of God. So we must not go to extremes. As This is not a furious, sadistic God who can't wait just to trample and squash and destroy humanity. No, he was grieving in his heart, and as he was grieving in his heart, this is human language, I understand, but it means to communicate something to us of the heart of God. As he was grieving in his heart, he said, I will destroy, I must destroy mankind, whom I have created. You see that? That's also very important statement I have created. You see, there is, oh, hear me now, <laughs> there is um, an, an element of affection in God, which is established solely on the base of creation. God loves and cares for all of His creatures because they are His creatures, because He's made them. Just like when you make something with your own hands, it's different than when you buy them at the store, isn't it? You, you, there's there's an uh, affective connection with it. Maybe just a little piece of wood out of which you carved something nice for your own enjoyment. There's an affectional connection with that created thing. Maybe a piece of wood. Well, the Bible is very specific. Here, God, in His own language, I will destroy man whom I have created. He was grieving in his heart. But I will destroy man from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. In fact, onward in this passage, look at verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. That word filled is important because again it underlines the idea of fullness, fullness of measure. The earth was full of violence. Violence is what? It's the external manifestation of the hatred and the sin and the perversion that man was had in his own heart. It can't evil can't stay just inside. It has to be manifested outside. And the fact that the earth was full of violence, full of war. In fact, it is very important, we don't have time now, but it's very important to study the archaeological evidence of what was happening in Mesopotamia before the flood, because we have documents that go back even to that age. <laughs> you know, the Mesopotamian records, that divine time before and after the flood. That's what they do written on stones. <laughs> and what was happening before the, the flood, according to Mesopotamian records, is violence, warfare, all over the area. <clears throat> in fact, again in chapter uh, 6, when, we, when in verse 4 it speaks of mighty men who were of old, men of renown, he's speaking of warlords. That word, mighty man, is always translated, like in the book of Joshua, like a man of war. <laughs> He's speaking of that sort of uh, man. So we're speaking of context of war, of warfare, of conquest, of military conquest, and violence was all over the earth. 
Verse 12, so God looked upon, the, looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh, that's again a word of total corruption, completion. In fact, of all humanity, how many were there who believed? Verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was at least one who believed, Noah, and I would say probably uh, one of his children, uh, Shem, according to chapter 9, he, he, he believed in the same God of Noah. So at least we have two, but two out of the whole humanity. We don't know about the rest. See, that's, that's, where, that's where sin has taken over completely. The remnant, the remnant has become very, 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 very small. And so God says, no more, no more. Having come to this point of corruption and perversion, I will destroy, I will destroy. So that's, we see here God in operation. It is not a God who desires to destroy. He loves the creatures that He's made. He loves all of the creatures that He's made, all the human beings He created. But if human beings, if human society, if this human world reaches a point of complete perversion, then the patience of God ends. And then He will, however sorrowfully, destroy. He will do it sorrowfully because God is love. God is love. Now, uh, if we move with Scripture... The next thing we may consider is actually the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, historically, Genesis 18. And you remember what happened here. When uh, God revealed to Abraham that he was going to destroy the two cities, uh, We read in verse 23, Abraham came near and said, uh, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there be fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth do right? So Abraham was sort of interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, that I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. He's, he wants to get into seat. <laughs> Suppose there be five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And Abraham goes on like this, all through this dialogue, until uh, <coughs> verse 31, he said, Indeed, now I have 
taking it upon myself to speak to the Lord, suppose 20 should be found there. He said, I will not destroy for the sake of 20. And he said, let the, the Lord be not angry. I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there in the whole city. 10 people, 10 righteous. And he said, I will not destroy for the sake of the 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. What happened, we know. God destroyed the city. Why? Because he could not find ten people that were righteous. Ten people that believed in him, loved him, and followed his moral values, his moral commandments. Therefore, he destroyed it. Which is again ties back to Genesis chapter 6. Because she sows the, the character of God, this perfect balance between righteousness and love between patience and judgment <laughs> it's like God is willing to be very very patient we would say even to the extreme to where there's just a handle of, of, of people that are still part of the remnant but when the remnant comes down to so little that it's about to be extinguished then God will destroy God will destroy. That's what He's done here. And that's the thought. That's the action that underlies, that uh, is the expression of His character. Now, biblically speaking, the next judgment we may contemplate is the destruction of the Canaanites. Isn't it? We may take many scripture about this, but would you go actually back to Genesis 15? You remember what happened there Uh, in this scripture, God reveals to Abraham his plan for him and for his people for hundreds of years, even into the Egyptian slavery. But he says, verse 15, Now as for you, you shall go to your own fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, 400 years, they shall return here. Out of the place of slavery, they shall return here. After 400 years. Uh, Abraham could say, well, why not before? Why wait 400 years? And the Lord said, because the iniquity of the Amorites it's not yet come to its fullness. That's literally what it means. It's not come to its completion, to its fullness, to the fullness of its expression. So, this is an amazing thought. <laughs> of course the land belonged to God. He could give it to anybody He wanted. But He had given it to the Amorites. He had given it to the Canaanites. And even though they had no thought of God, and they were perverse generation, perverse nations, depraved, yet God was patient with them, patient with them, patient with them for hundreds and thousands of years until, until their sin will come to its fullness of expression. And it was then that He would destroy them. Always with that uh, sentiment of heart that we find expressed in Genesis 6 
It is not a God who delights, who takes pleasure in destroying. The book of Lamentations speaks to that effect. Uh, and yet he will do so when uh, perversion uh, reaches its climax, as he has done here too. Now what about Israel? Israel. Let us go to Leviticus in chapter 26. Chapter 26. Now this is the chapter of the covenant. In the covenant we have sort of like two tables, even here. Because the Lord says in the first part of the covenant, from verse 1 through verse 13, if you obey my covenant, if you follow me, if you abide by my statutes, then I will bless you. I will bless you in every way, spiritually and materially. But, verse 14, if you do not obey me, and do not observe all of these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all the, my commandments, but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And if you follow on, reading on this passage, like in verse 18, and if after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Then look at 21, the same thing. If you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring, you, uh, bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. And he continues this way until uh, verse 27. If after this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, I even I, will chastise you seven times more for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense, your incense altars, cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. I will not smell the, the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will, land, I will bring the land to desolation. Your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. We can continue reading, but the gist of the passage is this. And what's he saying? Israel, I love you, and I called you to myself. Now follow me. If you, and Israel did enter in the covenant, we will obey. But the Lord specifies, if you do not fulfill the covenant you've entered to with me, with me then if you will fulfill it, I will bless you in every way. But if you don't, I will begin to chastise you. And throughout history, if you don't, do not turn to me, I will increase my chastisement and increase my chastisement seven times more and seven times more and seven times more to make you hear my voice so that you will hearken and repent 
and be converted. But if you will not hear me, never, then it will come a time where I will destroy everything and I will scatter you among the nations of the world. The land I have given you where honey and milk flows will uh, vomit you because of your own perversions. So that's the holiness of God. And I know these are terrific passages, but we need them. We need them. <laughs> we, we so easily grow accustomed to evil and sin that we need those strong reminders of who God is and how infinitely He hates what is evil. This is scary. This is terrifying. I, I understand. But this is the Bible communicating to us the fury of God, the judgment of God, the holiness of God that will ultimately judge the unrepentant sinner um, in the fullness of uh, his judgment. Paul speaks to that effect in Romans 2 to those who postpone and postpone and postpone because they delight in living without God and against God. Paul, is, Paul says you're doing nothing but accumulating accumulating the great, the, the um, anger of God, the wrath of God, who will one day overtake you. So God is patient, He's patient, and He's willing to postpone the manifestation of that wrath. But if you continue, you will see the, the, the manifestation of the accumulation of that wrath against all that you have been and all that you have done. And this is what ultimately will happen to humanity as it happened in the days of Noah. He did destroy the world and he did destroy the world and what a judgment. He did destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He did destroy uh, the Canaanites and it destroyed many nations throughout history. We understand. But we need to draw to our conclusion. So, uh, <clears throat> What about the nations of the world? Actually, what about Israel and then the nations of the world? Let us go back to Matthew to end our thoughts about the... Um, speaking of... First of all, I would say Matthew 21. This is a very precious, important chapter. I'm speaking about the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Verse 33. Here another parable says the Lord... There was a certain landowner who planted a, vine, uh, a vineyard and set a, a hedge around it, dug a vine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vin uh, vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruits. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Now we understand that here God is speaking of Israel and all the prophets that he sent to Israel through history and how the prophets were always rejected, mistreated, persecuted, and often killed. Verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did likewise to them. And last of all, and please, Understand, underline in your mind this expression, last of all. See, that's 
That's the end. That's the end. God cannot give you more than His Son. <laughs> so last of all, He sent His Son to them saying, They will respect My Son. But when the vinedressers saw the Son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill Him and seize in his, in his inheritance. And they caught Him and cast Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? The, the you know, disciple says to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and leave his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their se- uh, in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read in scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. He's speaking of the Gentiles here and the spreading of the gospel in the world. And moreover, false, and whoever, I'm sorry, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The Lord here, we can see, is also expressing something of the wrath of God. He wants us to understand that. Uh, So, the Lord had patience with Israel for uh, 1,500 years from the time uh, when they left Egypt up until the time of Christ. But the time of Christ was the critical time in history. In fact, in in chapter 23, you would remember He gave these final words to the religious leaders of Israel. Verse 31 Therefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up. And please underline that word. Fill up. That's the thought. The filling up of evil. The completion of evil. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents. Brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I sent you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on the same that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I surely say to you, all these sins will come upon this generation. And so it happened because Israel was destroyed. Exactly what was written in the covenant. All the cities were destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed 40 years later with the Judaistic wars that are described by Josephus, you know. And uh, the temple was destroyed and the whole nation of Israel was scattered all over the world just as God promised in the covenant. So it happened. But Christ here is speaking of that edge, that edge that was, that over that overflew, the, the, the cup of fullness, the, the, which cup was reached when they hated, crucified the Lord. So we see this consistency. It was only when they rejected even Christ 
and crucified him through the hands of wicked men. And even, even after that, Christ still sent him apostles and preachers and missionaries as he promises here. And they rejected even these because Israel needed to hear the gospel preached before it would be judged. But as Israel rejected Christ and rejected the gospel, then God judged them ultimately because the fullness of evil was reached in all of this. And the last scripture, therefore, is Matthew 24. And I'm speaking about um, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. We will need to take more time later on this evening to expand on several other scriptures concerning this. But what does it say here? Well, first of all, it goes back to the flood. <laughs> goes back to the flood. And the Lord says, what happened with the flood will happen when I return. So he takes the first great expression of God's judgment and he takes, why does he take the flood and not Sodom and Gomorrah or the Canaanites or Israel as an example? Because the flood is universal. It destroyed all of humanity. It judged all of humanity. So that's the historical point of reference, like no one else. So much so that even in Second Peter chapter 3, connects the flood, the judgment of the flood through water, with the judgment to come through fire. So these are the two historical point of reference to the Lord. Uh, secondly, when the Lord says that even as Noah preached repentance, people continue to build and get married and have a good time. Well, what, what does that mean? Uh, let us consider this just, just for a moment. Look at when it says, uh, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, married and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. What does this mean? Is this something wrong in eating and drinking, married and giving in marriage? No. So what does this mean? It means indifference. Indifference. As God warned and warned and warned for 110 years through the mouth of Noah, people continue to live as they always lived. As if God nowhere exists. Just as they pleased. Without Him and against Him. There's nothing wrong in <laughs> uh, eating, drinking, marrying, giving marriage, if you do so, if you do so in the Lord. But if you do so without God and against God, everything is sinful. Because you are living a godless life. And it doesn't matter what you do. 
You may have been a father that has worked all of his life to provide food on the table for your family. That doesn't make you just. That doesn't make you righteous. It's all been wrong. Because for every little bit of food that you have eaten, you never were grateful to God for what you received. You attributed all to yourself. I provided for this family. I'm a good man. Not so in the eyes of God. So this is the expression of indifference. And the Lord says that when the end will come, humanity will continue to be indifferent to all the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel will be preached to all nations through churches like us, locally and missionary-wise. But the world will not, will not hear, will not hear. I don't want to end on this note. Of course, I want to say, even this morning, there is room, plenty of room, for anyone who will say, I am, I want to turn, I want to know, I want to be at peace with God. I may no longer be a young man or a young woman, but I do want to know the Lord. I want to belong to Him and live the rest of my life for Him. Because the price of redemption has been paid. <laughs> we can be all set free through faith. A simple, empty hand that receives in faith all the fullness of the grace of God in Christ. That is clear in Scripture. And another encouragement I want to end with. You know, we, we talk about the end of the world, and the Lord talks about the end of the world. But that's not the final word of Scripture, is it? <laughs> it, it doesn't say, the Scripture doesn't end with the end of everything. <laughs> because, as we already read, uh, immediately after all of this tribulation of these last days, the sun will be darkened. Why? Because everybody has to see the shining glory of Christ when He comes. Can't be confused with the sun now. <laughs> he will be the only one shining. And every human being on the, the whole earth will see that. The stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of heaven will be shaken. This is a cosmic uh, change that will take place. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And then we'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And they will send His angels with the great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together His elect from all winds, all four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. We will speak more of this. But that is ultimately why He says, don't be troubled, don't be troubled. Oh, he tells us like it is, <laughs> like it will be. He doesn't, he doesn't make it any sweeter. He wants us to be realistic. It's going to be tremendously difficult as the near approaches, as the end approaches near. Uh, but as he says, these are only the beginning of the childbirth pangs. Uh, but how does those pangs end? the birth of the child. And as he reminds the disciples later on in the book of John, 
Once the baby is born, you don't remember the pain. You don't remember the pain. And the book of Revelation does say that the Lord will dry every tear from our eyes. This place will become darker and darker. There's no uh, question about it. Uh, God may intervene and bring revival, reestablish some righteousness. He may do so. We pray so. <laughs> uh, uh, so we don't want to be you know, de defeatists, or how do you say it in English? Uh, so we, we need to pray for that. But in the end, we know how the world is going gonna, is gonna to turn. So towards the very end, things will be bleaker and bleaker, darker and darker, uh, more and more evil and more difficult for us. Our freedoms will be taken away, we'll be persecuted, we'll be imprisoned, we'll be killed, we'll be betrayed by many professing Christians. They will give out our names, where we live, they will come to seek for us. But you know, as I'm thinking through these things in these days, that's what I've been saying to our church there. It is a privilege. <laughs> it is a privilege. If indeed we'll be the generation that will have to stand through those difficult times. And perhaps even witness the blacking out of the whole sun. Not of a few computers, you know, but of the whole sun. And the return of Christ. Would you rather die and be resurrected or be alive? and changed when he returns. Well, I'll leave you to answer that. But there is plenty of comfort in this. There is plenty of comfort. We need to be ready, willing. We need to study the life of the martyrs. See how they lived and died. Not much interest in those things these days. But we need to be. The Fox's Book of Martyrs. We, we would better read that along with the Bible that will help us understand what it means to be faithful. Only grace can make us faithful to the end. We're nothing in ourselves. But in God's grace we can be faithful to the end.